Hey friends, welcome in for mile 115 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. In this episode, we're bringing you the second half of our conversation about the recent publication, The Training Characteristics of World-Class Distance Runners, an Integration of Scientific Literature and Results-Proven Practice. Last time we discussed the author's key conclusions and added some of our own primary takeaways. Now we'll pick up with specific training methods and training intensities addressed in the paper, plus more on how you can apply these findings to your running, questions raised for the future of training, and new insights on tapering. We hope you enjoy, and if so, please subscribe, rate, and review on your podcast provider of choice. Now here's mile 115 of Seconds Flat. This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Bill, uh, what do you want to get into next? Because I think it would be valuable to break down the types of running that are noted in the like types of training session okay. section, excuse me. Yeah. And then apply that to an intensity section. Are, are you good no, there? You want to do that? Yeah, let's move there. Cause okay. Because with how they break this article down, this is an open access article. Yeah. So I think that's fantastic that. We will Basically, link it in the go, show notes. You know, read it yourself. But they kind of go through different sections of training periodization and competition scheduling. I think we've covered that uh, sufficiently. Um, the next section is on training method. Let's get into that a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So types of training. Let's. They put some really, really nice tables in yeah. this too that list all this out. I'm going to go through quickly all the types of training that they categorize. Yep. And so you can see what elites are doing. And I think a lot of this you can do. First thing they note, the slowest thing essentially yep. on the spectrum, warm-ups and cool-downs. Yep, and easy runs. Yes, I'll go to, I'm will go. i going to separate that okay. and go okay. to that next. Warm-ups and cool-downs ranging from 10 to 30 minutes, typically on soft surfaces when possible. They start very slow, but the last portion may approach marathon pace. Yep. This is somewhat just common sense. You're stepping out, you're first turning on the lights, get out so, so easy, yeah. and then it progresses as you near yep. the core of your session, the most intense elements you're going to later do in the training session. 10 to 30 minutes? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, we've talked about this before. I err towards more time on the warm-up than on the cool-down. Yeah. I think if you cool down for 10 minutes on some sessions, it's probably plenty. Yeah, it's probably plenty. Yeah. Warm up. There's some variability for individuals. At a certain age, that affects it too. Yeah. You go to a high school cross-country practice. These guys warm up for like a mile. <laughs> We're not warm. Me, I'm going typically at least 20 minutes yeah. on the warm up. But that's easy stuff you can do. You yeah. can do the exact same thing a professional does. Well, and as well, they specify here that this – is typically three to five kilometers an hour slower than marathon pace. Yes. Um, I don't know what the math is on that, but that's really slow. Yeah. You know, relative to what they 
can comfortably run for a really long time. Well, we could do the math. Well, it's, that's too hard for me. It's 1.6 to 3.1 miles. Yeah. That's, that's a big, big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next, easy runs. Continuous easy runs are typically used to sandwich harder training sessions. So you're going to put them, let's say it's the day before and the day after. Yep. They often last 40 to 70 minutes. That's simple. Yeah. That's doable. That's your everyday run. That's your everyday run. And these guys do a lot of that. Now, they accumulate more volume because even at a slow pace, they move faster than we do. And so they get more mileage or more Ks in their easy runs. But I do think we can take a direct connection in the time. Once you're appropriately trained, excuse me, getting to 40 minutes, 45 minutes upwards of then an hour or maybe 70 at the most in a single easy session makes a whole bunch of sense. And what a lot of these guys are doing is they're at the higher end of these on one run on an easy day. And then on a second run, they do the lower end. So you've listened to it on here enough now. I do a lot of these 60-30 or 30-60 doubles. These guys are doing something relatively similar in the amount of time. They're yep. just covering more distance. Well, and I, to me, that also highlights the fact that your body has no idea how far you've gone. No. It just knows how long you've been going. That's right. Yeah. You know, so whereas these guys may be going, you know, six thirty seven minute pace for, you know, that easy run, they're getting a similar benefit to somebody that may be even going nine, 10 minute That's pace, right. you know, over that 40 minutes. That's so right. the distance is, is different, but that benefit to your training is very similar. The distance is different, but might not be relevant to your improvement. Next, long runs. These are typically ranging from 45 to 120 minutes, so up to two hours for the track runners. And then 75, or an hour 15, to 165, or two hours and 45 minutes for the marathoners. These are more specific to the marathoners. There's a reason they're going longer. And they're largely steady running, not necessarily consistent pacing, but somewhat consistent effort in in this version of long run. Now they break out another category, the progressive long run. It's noted that this is most common among the African training groups. The idea is beginning easy. We are gradually quickening by around halfway and closing to as fast as half marathon pace. They note these runners just slow down if it feels strenuous. If this gets really hard, just slow down. They feel it. Yeah. Just slow down. They, they know. They pay attention to what, what the, it feels like. That's right. What is the perceived effort on that day? Too much? Dial back because that's not the goal of the long run. This is not a hard interval session. Interesting here. These are often 45 to 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, 45 short end. Yeah. Maybe for a track runner makes sense. 90. We don't see a lot of them going longer than that. We've raised this point here in the past that like the 20, 22, 24 mile progressive runs for the average runner when these are taking well over two hours just don't always seem like a lot of fun. Right. And two. That's a lot to recover from. It's a lot to recover from. Next, the threshold or tempo run for the continuous category. These are ranging from 20 to 50 minutes. At the low end of that, it's half marathon intensity. Boom. There's your favorite, Phil. Yeah, yeah. Your 20-minute tempo run, continuous half marathon effort. Hard. Yeah, yeah. At the 50-minute end, it's it's a moderate run. It might be perhaps marathon-type yeah. effort or maybe even a little slower. It could progress just a little. They're doing things that we do that you can do. Yeah. Next, 30 to 60-minute fartlek sessions. 
I think oh, it's you skipped the Paris Mountain Run on here, Travis. <laughs> <laughs> I think at some point in the future we're going to revisit Fartlek because they don't define it much here. This is going to have to be another episode where we build on this again and go back to Fartlek. My favorite yes, training your favorite style. Workout. Yeah, thirty to sixty minutes though for these yep. sessions. That's a good point to make. Threshold intervals, reps ranging of from three to fifteen minutes with thirty to seventy-five minutes of total work. The reason they break these into intervals rather than just doing tempo runs, as we discussed with the Ingebrigtsen model, is it allows for more volume at threshold efforts than the continuous run. Yeah. 75 minutes is a lot. And to me as well, this kind of brings up the point that that term threshold is such a garbage bag term. That's what I was going to say, because that's got to be... Yeah, three-minute intervals are far different than the 15-minute interval. The three-minute intervals, they note slightly faster than half-marathon pace. At the longest, I could see you going to 15 minutes at half-marathon pace, but I couldn't see you doing it for 75 minutes worth of work. So we know that those are more like first ventilatory threshold, right? right, Where Those are your workouts like three-by-two-mile at marathon pace. Right, yeah. Next, the faster intervals. Two to four minute intervals at between 3K and 10K pace. Typically, they're doing 15 to 20 minutes of work here. This may not translate quite as well as the other categories we've gone through so far, because an elite 10K runner in the track group here, they're running 27 something minutes, right? 20 minutes of work at that pace, 15 to 20 minutes, that's a significant bout. I think there is a place for a runner who maybe runs it at 32, 34, 36, 38-minute 10K, and on and on, to do seven by three minutes, let's say, is a good example, and you're over the 20-minute number they have here. I think you could go over it depending on your pacing, but I would also say at a certain point, you should probably just be working on the running economy with the consistency of running first, not the hard efforts. Get the easy one. Well, as you get some of these faster workouts and the recovery cost and the the structural breakdown yeah you know, sometimes you may be better served to get your frequency up next category hill reps i'm going to give this quote here this this oh, is all this you, is you need <laughs> honestly this is all i've ever needed summer's coming to are justify the hills heck yes we are <laughs> this is all i've ever needed to justify the summer of hills now i will say the summer of hills will be it's gonna get pushed back just a little bit because of my racing ah, that's calendar. right you're traveling it's yeah. gonna be the late summer okay. of hills okay uh but let me read this quote phil and then frankly let's just turn off the microphone we'll and go done. home yeah these are intended to quote overload horizontal propulsive muscle groups while reducing ballistic load. That's poetry. Let me take this to layman's terms. (laughs) This is runner-specific power work with reduced injury risk. That's essentially what they're telling us. It's improving the strength of those muscles that help to increase your stride length without sustaining the same level of impact that you would over level ground. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, it's beautiful. It is why it's a conversation I had the other day. I ran, you actually made a note of this before the 5K I ran last year when I hit the time I wanted. I only ran one session that had 5K specific work in it. I did an Aussie quarter with the 400 on at 5K, goal 5K. Otherwise, it was a bunch of hills, a bunch of other stuff. You can still get there because this is creating power that is directly transferable 
to what you need to run the faster events. Yeah. And it's often neglected, but not here because it's all I talk about. (laughs) These vary from 30 seconds to four minutes per rep and all the way from pretty fast to very aerobic. So in some ways, I think this depends on where you are within your training. I'll use the Nick Badeau example as one of the coaches they reference. They do a lot of three minute hills early on uh, that are maybe threshold at the most type effort. And then it starts to alternate where they'll maybe they'll do one at three minutes and Mm -hmm. one at a minute that they start to press faster or they might chunk those differently. But they're they're translating from essentially base hills to sharpening power hills. Uh, Last category we have are the sprints. Five to 15 seconds of near max effort, often done as strides. I was going to say that sounds like a stride to me. Right. Or a hill sprint. Or a flying sprint. We've discussed this briefly before. This is uh, where you're going to roll into a sprint. Uh, So you might do 30, 40 meters of sprinting, but with a roll into it, perhaps you put cones out on the track to mark a fly zone so that you're not starting um, from a block. Later, where the demands of that acceleration are quite high Mm -hmm. versus having it as like a flying start where you're just gradually building up to that peak speed is effective at building the strength for your stride, but without quite the recovery cost. That's, That's the key right there. Yeah. To add to recovery, these are often done most typically with full recovery between these efforts. Okay, so those are the sections uh, that they, or excuse me, the categories that they divide out as the types of run these guys and women are doing. There's nothing new there. Most of you are doing some of this. You can take these and just keep it in that minute context rather than worrying about the pace somebody's doing. We can't do their paces. Right. We can do four-minute efforts, or we can do 15-minute efforts, or 15-second efforts. So to simplify the next section on then how this translates to an intensity distribution, they provide a very nice table with two different zone models. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to use the three-zone model because it's relatively simple, and it's one we've discussed before, where zone one is the easiest and zone three is the most intense. There's a nice breaking point that they create. 10K and faster efforts are in the third zone. Yep. Half marathon efforts are in the second zone. Steady progressive long runs, steady and or progressive long runs, and or marathon pace are at the break point from zone one to zone two. Easy runs, warm-ups, cool-downs are all in zone one. Yeah. Hey, so that, so as that an aside, going... Phil, wait, before we go on, as an <laughs> aside, sounds like these guys count their warm-ups and cool-downs as mileage. Oh, I know some silliness. people on the internet are not into that. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead with your point. No, so, so, you know, zone one is anywhere from shuffling all the way up to about marathon pace. Mm-hmm. Zone two is marathon pace up to 10K pace. Mm-hmm. And zone three is 10K pace and faster. And even as they break it down into the, what, the six-zone model... You know, the first two zones are relatively easy, easy running. Um, that third zone is your half marathon pace. The fourth zone is your 10K pace. Zone five is your mile to 5K pace. You know, zone six is 800 mile pace. And zone seven is you know, basically a flying sprint to up to a 400 meter pace. You know, so it, it's easy to... And well, we've done it here to try to overcomplicate a lot of this stuff. Doesn't on, it feel like it? Yeah. yeah. On on heart rate or yeah. you know percents of VO two max or you know whatever to make it simpler, 
just take that down to you know race paces. If you could translate these to race paces, and the simplest version is the three zone model, but I appreciate you laying out the the larger zone model. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if we keep it simple and go, okay, here's easy up to marathon. Here's marathon to 10K with half marathon at the heart. And here's 10K and faster. And most of us are not really going to do a ton of stuff faster than 10K other than the hills and the sprints, which may be in the context of strides or hill uh, hill sprints or flying sprints. Next step, the marathoners do the most zone three work early. Then we filter through the funnel of specificity and actually move more back to zone two as they near the race. Track runners on the flip trade out some of that zone two work for the zone three work as the key competition nears because it's more specific. It's 10K and faster. And we are talking about 5K, 10K runners. Well, and to me, what this highlights, I think, is that from a periodization perspective, we still really don't know what's ideal. You know, whether that's moving from race-specific paces to, you know, faster paces, or whether that's moving from faster paces to race-specific paces as we get closer to a goal event. You know, reverse periodization versus a standard linear periodization, Mm -hmm. both are successful. So to that point, one, to paraphrase uh, what they found, periodization models need more testing or study and it's unclear why and if these work best yeah but this is a results proven practice paper and the movement towards specificity seems to be what most of these successful runners do that we can take and apply well, and as well, just the variety through a training cycle that they're doing. All right. I'll, I'll build that with uh, a quote that I noted here. Yeah. That high intensity and low intensity training, quote, elicit a complex suite of overlapping and complementary adaptations. Yeah. End of the quote. Now, that doesn't mean we do them in equal parts because right. as we told you from the key findings, 80 plus percent of the stuff is low intensity. But doing the high intensity at the appropriate time in the appropriate dose combined with the low intensity, again, elicits a complex suite of overlapping and complementary adaptations. That's well said. So what does that mean to the common runner? In your seven days, if you're running five times, hypothetically, if four of those are low intensity, put one in that's high intensity, it High intensity doesn't mean all out. Right. We have a misperception of this in kind of our exercise culture of like a hit training class right. at the gym or something. Like 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off right. or something like it, that. It, yeah. it could just be 10K, 8K type effort. It could be hills. That's your high intensity day. You did four low intensity, the one that high, they cross over and they they build upon yeah. each other and yeah. make each other stronger yep. and make you a better runner. Also about structuring the week. This makes sense. It's intuitive. But just a key reminder of what they're doing that you should be doing. The interval session is often considered the key for the track runner. That's what we build the week around. Yep. The marathon runners most often center their week around the long run. The long run. Yeah. You don't have to put yourself in one bucket the whole time. We've encouraged you here to move back and forth 
between events and among multiple events. Yeah. But when you're in a marathon cycle, let's say, if you really want to peak for a marathon, you probably want to center it around the long that run. That long run's the focus. Yeah. And if if the 3K is your goal, God bless you, because I don't want to see mine. <laughs> hey, what a painful event. Then those track sessions are what yeah. we need to focus on. You don't necessarily get rid of the other. We just center the schedule more around one or the other. I think that was a great point. I'm going to hit a couple more things that just stuck out to me sure. here in this section. On cross-training, the arguments supporting its inclusion, they note, include injury prevention and avoidance of training monotony. Those are both great. Mm -hmm. We can all apply it for that reason. The studio is collapsing around oh, us. Goodness. What the heck was that? Phil. There's so many shoes in here. <laughs> so, including injury prevention and avoidance of training monotony. Those are both great. The authors suggest also, though, that further studies should be done to investigate if, when we are highly trained, we should be including it more in addition to our running mm -hmm. to provide additional stimulus without additional muscular load. Yeah. And we've hinted at this recently that you don't necessarily want to get rid of your running and substitute it with cross-training if you want to be at your best. Right. There could be specific instances and reasons, perhaps you're coming back from an injury, whatever it might be. But if you really want to hit it at your best level, perhaps you're still doing the same amount of running that you are now. And the next move, rather than pressing the running over the edge... Yep is to incorporate more swimming, yeah. for example. Well, and they had the, the observation in here, even back from Bill Bowerman, that basically, mm. you know, his training cycled around, you know, two to three weekly interval sessions, a weekly long run, and then as much low intensity work as you can handle to fill in the rest. So doing as much mileage as you know, your your body can, can handle, as your life schedule can handle. But then on top of that, to your point, you know, once we get to that mileage that may be ideal for you, then on top of that, let's, if you have the space in your life, you know, add some swimming or add some cycling yeah. Yeah. You know, to further improve that aerobic development. I love the Bowerman reference. I'll point out, remember, he's working with college athletes. Right. They're going to recover quicker just because of age factors yep. than you might. So the point he's is to kind of figure out what you can maximally handle or yes. to work towards that. And then from a workout perspective, so long runs, interval sessions, what have you, the rest of that needs to be easy running and yes. then on top of that if we want to layer it is your cross training right we're still doing a long run we're still filling all the gaps with low intensity stuff we're still doing sessions but it might not be three it might not right. even be two right that might be too much for us but the general simple framework again it translates it's noted that strength power and plyometric training in small doses are used to improve economy and are used more frequently in mid-prep rather than when we near competition. Simple lesson for all of us. <laughs> we don't start throwing around a bunch of heavy weights yep. five days out from the big race. We're doing it way back before, and then we're kind of, to a degree, phasing it out. But also it's noted that all of these athletes are doing it in small doses. To be at this level as an endurance athlete, the focus of your time... It needs to be running. It needs yeah. to be running, yeah. right? Uh, well, and really, I think that point is one of the things that's probably changed the most significantly over the past you know, 20 years, and certainly compared to the 60s and 70s, is that you're seeing so many more folks incorporate 
more strength training into their general structure. Yeah. I just came from yoga. Yeah. Interesting quote also in when it comes to recovery that backs up some stuff that I have just wildly aimlessly asserted here in previous <laughs> episodes with no other evidence than myself on super shoes. This is a quote. I wanted to talk about this one. Yeah. Anecdotal evidence suggests less muscle soreness and increased training tolerance. We're not talking about racing in them. Yeah. We're talking about what they do for your training. And your recovery. And your recovery. Yeah. This doesn't mean I'm telling you, you all need to go out and buy the most expensive super shoes, but it does suggest perhaps where their real value is because it lets you get to the line fresher. Yeah. It lets you extend your career. For it lets these, you recover after those hard sessions. I can get back to hard sessions. To me right now in my running, the combination of doing long runs in one of these super shoes yeah. with better fueling, I think I've, I've done that better, and good sleep has allowed me to bounce back for quicker sessions, mm -hmm. feeling better, and having more frequent and better results. Yeah. And the shoes are part of it. Well, and I think in my case, typically I will use, it's not a super shoe, but it has some of the newer foams in it yes. for like my long run and for my workout. I'll race in a, in a super shoe, but you know, that foam to me, I'm still getting the mileage. I'm still getting the workouts. But after that long run, the next day, yes, I'm sore, but I don't feel nearly as beat up as I do in a you know standard trainer. And I, I think what's... I'll be curious to see what comes out of this over the next five, 10 years. You know, of course we've seen the shift in race times, but with number, what their point is that how this allows these athletes to train more. That might really be what's leading to yeah, the better times, yeah. right? Not just what the shoe does for you on race yep. day. Yeah. And, and I'm curious because, you know, we've been in shoes that have, and the, we're going to go off on a tangent, so I'm sorry. But, Do it. Uh, you know, a lot of these traditional race excuse me, running shoes from, you know, five, 10 years plus ago are all based off of an EVA foam. You know, mm -hmm. one's company had a, a, a certain formulation that's slightly different than another, but it's all this relatively same material, whereas some of these newer foams are a totally different material. So if we think about what, you know, we talked about how the ground contact times relate to injury risk. You know, when, yeah. you're, when your body hits the ground, your tissues impact at a certain resonant frequency there's a vibration there that your body has to absorb that and this is all conjectured and i could be dead wrong probably am but that eva may dampen that vibration at a certain frequency whereas these newer foams dampen it at slightly different frequencies yeah. so offloading those tissue structures again i this is purely conjecture but i you know i think the research is heading towards this direction but in terms of what that means and your ability to recover could be very significant. So it's not even just the super shoes, yeah. but it's you know, all these other shoes that are coming out with the foam in them. You know, yeah. whether it's the Nike Invincibles or Brooks is coming sure. out with the glycerin. Yeah, you know, so that will be interesting to see. That was a good moment in the Dr. Phil recovery corner right there. <laughs> I, I appreciated that tangent. And you're right. You are hypothesizing, but you're extrapolating based on some yeah. experience and some data. I, I think you're on the right track. Yeah. It's, hey, it's just like we read here. The coaches and the athletes are ahead of the studies. Yeah. And we might be in the people running these shoes feeling it. The data might just catch yeah. up with us in time. Yeah. I mean, in terms of doing this type of research, it, it involves a lot of mathematical modeling and a lot of, of force data that is really pretty hard to do. Yes. But I remember the first 
run, first long run I did, it was when Pegasus came out with, the, or Nike came out with the Peg Turbo. Yeah. You know, I, I joined you for like a two hour long run. And usually you know, the rest of the day I'd be pretty wrecked and the next day would be limping around a little bit. But it got done and that afternoon it's like, huh, this just feels better. It feels better, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. There's a Zoom X foam layer in yeah. that. Yeah. I ran 17 and a half miles at a steady clip this morning in a pair of Alpha Flies. Yeah. I feel fresh as a daisy. You look it too. Thank you, sweetie. <laughs> I mean, let's go out and run 17 and a half more after this. Why not? Another very important point. The differences in volume between the two subclasses largely results from differences in the key sessions. For example, how long is the long run and what's the length of the workout? That's a, a big takeaway yeah. for me. Imagine you as a runner. You've been running 5Ks. You want to build to a marathon. The big difference doesn't come in making every day longer. Right. It's making certain days longer. It is the long run gets longer. Yep. And then what? if we would go back to the Rosario Fitzgerald book on what they've done at Nazalite, the sessions get longer. Those workouts have... They were like medium long runs right. just in a hard workout where you're doing multiple miles rather than you're doing 400 right. reps all the time. You don't have to try to fill every day with a ton more volume, fill key pieces with more volume, yeah. and you're going to be doing what the best runners in the yep. world do. This is maybe less significant, but I do think a distinction Training at moderate levels in elites is more demanding because of their fractional utilization of VO2 max. And so this might be a reason for them to do more moderate workouts. Mm -hmm. Rosario references this in their new book. Yeah, we're doing a ton of easy days, but we're not pressing super hard even in our workouts. And for them, because they that threshold is so close yeah, to the yeah. VO2 max, so the more trained you get, perhaps it's a suggestion that the less severely intense your hardest sessions should be, not to say you eliminate those, but just in total, mm -hmm. in sum, you might do more like seven out of 10 workouts right. on well, the Kip scale. Well, Kipchoge himself has said how he never has a 100% workout. Yeah, but... well, but he also says, like, he never goes harder than 80%. I can understand, yeah. but he's talking about a lot of them being 50% days. And yep. that starts to leak into the realm of just freak. There's, right. Can we apply that? The first part of it, as you said, there's no 100% days for him. Yes, we can apply yep. that for sure. Remember, he's at elevation. Yep. He's on dirt tracks. He's on dirt roads. And so, yeah, those those efforts probably would translate to a higher percentage for us, given yeah. those circumstances. I don't know why I jumped on you about that one. <laughs> Phil, you were making a good point. I got all fired up. Okay. Anything you want to add there before I go to some questions that we need to explore more that come out of this? No, I think that's... Okay. Yeah, let's move on. Okay. Some big takeaways for me that I think we need to ask, we need to consider moving forward, and then I'm going to close it with one more piece on tapering. Yes. Yeah, we need to, to cover tapering. Yeah. First, how do we, just from a research perspective, how do we balance the methods of these coaches and runners that are surveyed? Because some of them are from decades ago, and others are, are current. Do we apply more weight to one or the other? Did we learn from those folks, both good and bad, yeah. that we've changed? And so we just need to keep that context. I would argue, 
in American running, perhaps going back to some of those people is really, yeah. really valuable because we've talked about how I love Fartlek almost as much as Hills. <laughs> Not quite. Within Fartlek, what do I do a ton of? Alternating. Yeah. I don't run the off super easy. This is what so many of our athletes do where you swing to a float. You take your foot off the gas rather than hitting the brake. Guess what? The Australians are doing it. The East Africans more than anyone are doing it. But Americans used to do it too. Yeah. Bowerman did it. Dellinger, if you look in winning running, mm -hmm. De he did it all the time. They also did it in the broader structure of the workout where you started hard, then you did something more moderate in the middle, then you came back to something hard at the end. I think we got swept up in American running, particularly in track. We got swept up in single paced sessions. Yes intervals yeah. because that's what the research data was based on well and if you look at the success well the lack of success of american distance running through the 90s oh yeah you know, when it was like bob kennedy and you know nobody else who i don't right. know some friend of mine was probably like the third best runner <laughs> in the country but the work overstated it was, but yes. it was you know continuous efforts at this specific physiological variable and just repeating that over and over yeah. and over again whereas if we go back to the 70s or you know going beyond the fart looks, but like the progression runs. Yeah. And Bob Larson and his group in the seventies was doing that. Where, Absolutely. You know, it's an eight mile run. You start out easy for the cups first couple of miles. And then the last, you know, two, three miles, it's a race to the barn. That was before he was famous before yeah. he had the, uh, these great runners like Meb, but they had huge success yeah. with it. This feels like another example of we didn't let the science catch up to the coaches and athletes. Yep. We went the other direction and it might not have served us well. Yeah. Next one. This is a quote. Easy runs are somewhat misguidedly termed recovery runs or regeneration by some coaches, assuming that their value is merely to accelerate recovery prior to the next hard session. No scientific studies to date support this assumption. I had to hit the brakes right there. <laughs> I almost I almost called Steven Seiler. <laughs> we need to have him on the podcast. Uh, I will reach out. No scientific studies to date support this assumption. My immediate response is one, but do they oppose it? Right. Because I don't see those studies. It just seems like they haven't done the study to confirm it. An anecdote seems really powerful mm -hmm. here because there's a lot of people who will tell you that's why they do these yep. runs. And what about the value in using these terms like recovery and regeneration to slow a runner down and make sure they don't overdo it and yeah. impede recovery yep. before the next session? It just seems like another case of the science following the coaches. Well, Maybe I, the data is going to catch up. I think from a training perspective, just that shift in mindset can be so effective in that thinking about how many folks structure their normal weeks where so much of the running is done at like a moderately hard effort. Yeah. You, know, you may have a workout, you may have a long run, but 90% may be moderately hard. So we aren't making really effective progress. You know, outside of those workouts, having those days, instead of, you know, looking at your watch saying, I need to run X pace or I need yeah. to run at a certain speed. Throw that thing. GPS is a fad. Yeah. I already said it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, having the mindset of this run needs to be easy. Or this run is a recovery run, even though that first mile may feel like garbage, I need to run this at an effort that 
when I finish, you know, 30, 40 minutes later, 70 minutes later, yeah. that I'm going to feel better than, than I did when I started. before I started. Yes. This is, again, another great piece that you can take as a runner from what the best do. Yeah, they're, they're saying here that maybe easy run, that term gets misguided with yeah. words like recovery, regeneration. But you need to have that in your mind of what that goal of the session is. And if it really is, I'm beat up, I had a really hard day yesterday, it's not just saying to yourself, I need to run easy. It's, I need to run ridiculously easy. Yeah. I put it in a plan for one of our athletes. I think I used the term uncomfortably glacially slow <laughs> to, to begin with at yeah. least on those days so i maybe i'm disagreeing with them a little bit who am i to disagree with these guys but i'm more so just asking the question yeah we haven't got the data yet to support it but we definitely don't have it yeah that goes the other way either to oppose it let's wrap with tapering yes okay it's time uh, to rest it is yes <laughs> first these runners are typically tapering for 7 to 10 days. That's that period of cutback before the, the big performance. That's significantly less than the traditional scientific guidance we see yeah. of two to three weeks. Two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. Anecdotally, I've had my best success at 10-ish days yeah. for marathons. Yeah. Well, I, I think you know, going back to the, the science following the practice, this is the one area where there is terrible data. Oh. You know, there's nothing to really give us specific uh, You know where the best guidance. data comes from in, in that we use for running tapers? It comes from swimming. Yeah, swimming. Yeah. <laughs> and again, we know it's also an endurance event, but we go back to the point of it's totally different impacts on the body. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got a quote here that I found particularly interesting. And I think this is a great place to wrap because it has so much value for age group recreational yeah. runners because those tend to be the folks who race more and race more frequently. And as you said, they find the fun race yeah. and, they, and they want to be ready for it. I, I found this very powerful. Here's the quote. Outstanding performances across a three-month competition period can be achieved without tapering for a specific competition by merely reducing the training substantially in the last four to five days prior to competition. That, that one stood out to me as well. Isn't that yeah. really interesting and, and a powerful point if you have multiple races coming up over a block? I'm going to try this. Yeah. All right. Because it's similar to a protocol I was using and kind of fine tuning anyway. I'm going to try it on myself. Last four days of what it looks like before my next race, which is not my target race. The target race is like six or seven weeks later. So we're within this three-month yeah. window. Other folks will race even more. You know, it's think about uh, particularly like a, a university or high school system right. where you're trying to figure out how do I taper to be fresh enough to get to nationals? Right. Then to what do I do at nationals? nationals. Yeah. yeah. The, the evidence suggests, okay, reducing the training substantially in the last four to five days. And and we see this particularly in the Canova stuff, what, what he's done with his athletes. He almost at points doesn't even care if you run. But the one thing he couples that with is don't get rid of the strides. Yeah. Stay snappy. Yeah. It's, I think it's an interesting thought. Well, and to, to me, for what I guess I would consider common 
practice for age groupers. Uh, the two takeaways here are that you know, traditionally it's been, you know, you want to taper two to three weeks before a marathon. Yeah. That's not necessary. You know, seven to 10 days should be plenty. Especially if you're not even running enough miles that a taper is really that right. important, yep. right? If, Absolutely. You know, if you're just building, this is another thing. Maybe you came off an injury and you're increasingly getting more fit as yeah. the race nears. Yeah. Why do we cut that off three weeks out? And as, as part of that, that the proper taper still maintains that frequency. So you're still yes. running the same number of days. Yes. It still maintains the intensity. So you're not cutting out workouts. You're still doing workouts. They may not be quite as long Mm -hmm. um and then you're still keeping those strides in there keeping something in there to keep you sharp yeah um yeah i'll add the the joe v hill approach is frequency should stay at 80 plus percent of what it was if you need to take a day off for some reason if you need to cut a double if you're a person who doubles that's fine do it you can cut down a little bit of frequency but it should remain really similar and as you said the intensity is the same for certain events it might even get dialed up right but the length of the sessions in minutes yeah. reduce. So you may not be going out for that hour run, but that might be 45 minutes or yeah. half an hour. You may not be going out for that 10 by 400 session, but that might still be four to six by 400. Yeah. Anything you want to add to close it up, Phil? The, the other thing that I, when they talked about that stood out to me with athletes coming back after a competition phase. So they, they've recovered from the race for yeah. a week and as they're building back mileage, you know, they pointed out the role that frequency plays in terms of building that mileage. And I think at the age group level, so much of it gets caught into, you know, I'm going to run three days a week or five days a week, and then I'm going to build that as much as I can. Yeah. There really is a role in adding. Add that, the fourth day. Add the or fourth add day. The sixth add day. the sixth day. Yes. And it doesn't have to be another, you know, even session compared to the other days, but there's some benefit to building this volume back of a 20 minute run or of a 30 minute run. You know, I, I know personally, I've liked to run almost every day. You know, I take a day off maybe once a week at times I've gone months at a time without taking a day off. Mm-hmm. And that's really even when I've been the healthiest because you're getting that stimulus yeah. every day. And that might be, let's you know make up a number, you know, 30 miles over the week. If that's done over a three day training week, you know, 10 miles at a time is huge. But if that's broken up over, you know, seven days, and I wouldn't advise this, but that averages out to, you know, four miles a day. Mm -hmm. And that's a significantly different impact load. But at the same time, we're still getting that same volume. We will link this article in the show notes. There's so much good stuff here. The training characteristics of world-class distance runners and integration of scientific literature and results proven practice we're taking case studies of what the best in yeah. the world are doing. And then we're taking that next step to here's what they do that you can do, you should do, or maybe you should just be aware of. Yeah. And maybe there's other stuff you should be cautious about. But there's so many ways you can, as Rosario and Fitzgerald say in their book title, run like a pro. Yeah. We will follow up with this on how this applies to Fartlek because it's the one area that they didn't really dive into very yeah. deeply. They just gave us that 30 to 60 minute guidance of the total session. And what I'd like to do, Phil, if you're up for it in the future, is to go back and apply those 30 to 60 minute sessions across the different training runs and training intensity distributions so that we can maybe update our wisdom on how you could apply it for every one of those 
types of, of intensities. Yep. Yeah. So I like that idea. We'll do that in the future for sure to, to give you, if nothing else, just a good bank of workouts mm-hmm. that you could pick from to play with, to have fun in your running. Yeah. It's speed play. Yeah, there have, you go. Have fun with it. <laughs> there we go. All right. Everybody have a great week. We will see you next time on Seconds Flat.